Welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In 2011, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released a unique disaster preparedness plan. In a blog post titled, Preparedness 101, Zombie Apocalypse, the organization recommended stocking up on food, water, and other supplies, as well as writing a detailed emergency plan to be used just in case the undead come back looking for brains. The warning, of course, was a joke, but the motivation behind it wasn't, and the zombie preparation plan got people talking about preparing for real emergencies like hurricanes, tornadoes, and other disasters. Today, we're talking about what healthcare organizations can do to be ready for natural disasters. Nick Hutt brings us the story of Memorial Hermann Texas Medical Center in Houston and its response to Hurricane Harvey. Then, Eric Reese offers tips for hospitals preparing for a natural disaster. But first, you'll hear about preparation of a different kind in part two of my series about maternity care and the revenue cycle. My interview with Maureen Clancy of Privia Health is coming up right after the news. With your update on recent healthcare financial news developments, this is Rich Daly, senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hospitals and Medicare's first mandatory bundled payment model succeeded in cutting Medicare gross spending in their first year. That, according to a new analysis. The results came as the Trump administration said it planned to introduce more mandatory models. The comprehensive care for joint replacement model required most hospitals in 67 geographic areas to accept a bundled payment for all services involved in joint replacement and for 60 days of post-op care. Although hospitals and advocacy groups were nervous about requiring facilities without experience in bundled payment to participate, the average Medicare payment for those hospitals that did participate decreased by 3.3% more per episode than payments to hospitals in a control group. That reduction occurred over just nine months since CJR launched April 1, 2016, and its first year ended at the end of 2016. The Lewin Group report wrote, quote, our results indicate that CJR participant hospitals successfully responded to the financial incentives of the CJR model during the first performance year. In fact, the positive early results surprised the Lewin assessors. They wrote, quote, possibly the most notable outcome during the first CJR model performance year was that statistically significant changes in utilization and payments occurred so quickly. With approximately nine months of implementation, the CJR model resulted in outcomes that are consistent with what has been achieved in other bundled payment initiatives. Medicare had found that CJR's precursor model, the Voluntary Bundled Payments for Care Improvement Initiative, was associated with a 3.8% decrease in per-episode spending and had stable to improved quality. In separate news, a large portion of the $1.1 billion in ongoing annual regulatory relief proposed for providers by the Trump administration in mid-September would come from lower costs for hospital outpatient departments. By far the largest amount of regulatory savings in the proposed rule was an estimated $454 million from lifting the requirement that every patient treated at a hospital outpatient department or ambulatory surgery center receive a medical history and physical. Said Seema Verma, administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, every hour saved from reducing needless administrative burden is an hour more that our healthcare system can spend improving America's health outcomes 
and every needless requirement we eliminate saves patients and taxpayers money. The proposed changes came as part of the Trump administration's Patients Over Paperwork initiative, which CMS projected will eliminate more than 53 million hours of burden for providers and save nearly $5.2 billion between 2018 and 2021. Total annual provider savings from other changes in the proposed rule include $105 million from hospital infection and control changes, $86 million from changes to swing bed requirements for critical access hospitals, and $94 million from changes to the requirement that emergency preparedness be assessed annually by healthcare facilities. Under current rules, the medical history and physical examination requirements must be met no more than 30 days before surgery or 24 hours after admission for a procedure requiring anesthesia services except in emergencies. Instead, CMS proposes to require that an assessment be performed when the patient is receiving specific outpatient surgical or procedural services. Otherwise, the medical staff could develop and maintain a policy that identifies specific patients as requiring a comprehensive medical history and physical examination. For other news developments in healthcare finance, please check out our website at hfma.org forward slash news. And now, a quick message before we move on to our next story. Are you interested in extending your organization's thought leadership? Connect with HFMA listeners by sponsoring an upcoming podcast. For more information and to discover all the ways you can partner with HFMA, visit us at marketingopportunities.hfma.org. Welcome back to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. One of the first decisions my husband and I made when we learned we were going to have a third child was to buy a minivan. The Toyota RAV4 that served as our family car wouldn't fit three car seats, so with more than a few chuckles about how we were becoming our parents, we upgraded to a vehicle with plenty of room and a much larger car payment. Adding a child to the family means piling on significant household expenses, and as a planner, I like to know what I'm in for. When I was pregnant with my oldest, I was pleasantly surprised when, early on, my physician's office presented me with a document detailing their fee, what my health plan would cover, and finally, the amount I'd be responsible for paying. I was then given the option to pay in installments over the course of my pregnancy or receive a bill for the full amount at the end. I took the first option, and by the time I took my daughter home to the excitement and chaos of our new family life, I had one less responsibility competing for my attention. Today, we're bringing you my interview with Maureen Clancy, Senior Vice President of Revenue Cycle Management at Virginia-based Privia Health, about beginning the patient financial conversation, which she says should start as soon as possible. High deductible health plans are the norm these days, and with all the other expenses of bringing a baby into the home, you certainly don't want medical debt to be carried over. We here at Privia, our doctors have an automated payment plan system. So if we're talking about financial professionals, what do you want to make sure you have? You want to make sure that you've got a systematic way of setting up those payment plans so that they're consistent but adaptable if they need to be and that the patients have the flexibility of paying through credit card or statements and, and you know whichever way is going to be most convenient. And typically doctor's offices will set this up so that the full payment is collected by the 36th week. We also talked about what happens when a normal pregnancy takes an unexpected turn and suddenly becomes high risk. In pregnancy and cancer treatment, you know, there's the sort of the shock of the medical piece. 
sometimes if it's bad news or even just uncertain news, you know, the last thing you want to do is, oh, by the way, it's going to cost you another X thousands of dollars. Yeah. You know, you want to be sensitive to that. That's that's where, you know, you take a really well-trained finance professional who has empathy, and oftentimes these conversations are had with a clinical person who, who might have knowledge or um the conversation happens, you know, around the treatment options with the clinical person, that decision is made, and then you talk with the finance professional around, here's what we've decided, we're going to go with XYZ test, we're going to, you know, not go with this test, what have you, and they will then go back, re-verify your eligibility with your insurance for that particular right turn, if you will, in your care plan, making sure that you've got the coverage for that and then re-estimate your out-of-pocket. And, and your system should be able to adjust the prepayment plan to take into account this additional test. There's the sensitivity, but then there's also the financial reality that if you, if you truly need this test and you and your doctor have decided that you need to have the test, it somehow has to get paid for. Keeping up with trends in consumerism and disruptive innovation is critical to improving health outcomes and your organization's financial performance. The good news is you don't have to face these challenges alone. At this year's Revenue Cycle Conference, you'll collaborate on key takeaways and come away with strategies and tactics to make your organization's revenue cycle more accurate, efficient, and patient-focused. Register now at hfma.org rcc and join us in Denver October 21st through the 23rd. This is Nick Hutt, Managing Editor with HFMA. I'm speaking with Brian Dean, the CEO of Memorial Hermann Texas Medical Center in Houston. We're just a few weeks past the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Harvey, which devastated the Houston area and ranks with Hurricane Katrina among the two costliest storms in the history of the mainland United States. We'll speak with Brian about how his hospital planned for and dealt with the disaster. Brian, thank you for taking time to join us. It's a pleasure to be here. Before the storm hit, what were some of the steps that Memorial Hermann Texas Medical Center took to make sure it was as prepared as possible? Yeah, you know, we <clears throat> having obviously in a on a uh, coastal city as Houston is, and having lived through a couple of other tropical events in the last uh, fifteen or twenty years, I think we've got a pretty robust process of preparing. And while you see the storm and you have that kind of visibility of what's coming your direction, you're never, I think, fully prepared. You can take the necessary steps. So, you know, we were, as kind of the the views of a fairly intense rain event, flooding event, you know, we were planning to have food supplies that would last us uh, seven days. So, you know, working with a lot of our vendors and our distributors to ensure we had medical supplies and food rations and everything that we needed. I think we were we were well prepared um, as it relates to infrastructure inside the hospital. Obviously, we had our staff on alert and, and you know, everybody is assigned to specific response teams or ride-out teams. So, all those were in place, and we do that, obviously, the planning for that outside of hurricane season. So it was one of those elements where, you know, I felt like we had all of our generators were set. You know, there was uh, back in Tropical Storm Allison, this Texas Medical Center campus was flooded and evacuated for over 60 days and closed. And, you know, we are the busiest level one trauma center in the country. So when you lose a critical community asset like that uh, due to natural disaster, it really does kind of cripple the safety net for the city. So 
having those learnings historically and then coming back and applying them to kind of today's events, I think we've we've done a lot of infrastructure uh, enhancements uh, with the help of FEMA uh, since Tropical Storm Alice, and it allowed us to ride out the storm pretty well this time. And then during the storm, how much of your response went according to plan? What might have required you to adjust or even improvise? Yeah, you know, it's a great question because I think, you know, in, in normal tropical storm or hurricane events, the, the event happens over, you know, a period of hours and then you kind of roll into recovery. And I think that was our plan. That's how we had kind of outlined this was going to work. I think through the first part of the storm, um, it really wasn't a windstorm, obviously. It was a rain event, which I think we were adapting after we got through about 12 hours and kind of continual rainfall. Internally, we were doing well. We had uh, adequate medical staff. We had uh, adequate clinical staff and leadership on the ground. And, and I thought we were well positioned for that. We were obviously very well coordinated with our uh, Southeast Texas uh, Emergency Response Coordinating Body, which uh, was doing a great job managing the, the storm. I think where we started to get kind of the adaptive approach was as the rain kept coming and the inability to navigate the community in any way, and if that's, you know, transitioning out uh, clinical staff or transitioning out medical staff, that became a significant issue for us. You know, you just couldn't travel on the roads, and it wasn't a matter of hours. It, you know, it became days uh, that many roads were impassable and parts of the city were cut off. Looking ahead, what would the hospital consider doing differently in the event that such a disaster strikes another time? We've had three kind of 500-year floods now in the last four years. So the ability to get the logistics solved, and even you see some of the local governments and municipalities buying high-water vehicles, and that's, you know, I've I think the ability to have a more robust uh, surge plan, maybe is the right word for staffing, that we've got the modes of transportation to go get people uh, if we have, you know, a major high water event that, uh, you know, is a five-day duration again. Um, And I think that the coordination with the local governments uh, was well done through this process. I think there's a lot of... uh, through FEMA and other resources. I know that we're trying to gain access to technology or vehicles that will allow us to resolve some of the logistical issues that that Harvey presented for us. And, of course, obviously hoping we never have to pull them out of the garage. Uh, But that's something I think going forward that we have to look at staffing um, in the long run. The other element, we had the opportunity to meet with some folks from CMS after the storm as they were here helping us recover you know, the, there are, and especially in the Texas Medical Center, it's not just the Memorial Hermann campus, but also our our colleagues down the street, is that, you know, we provide such a high quaternary level of care that require really specialized uh, clinicians. And the ability, if you now have a smaller pool of individuals that can care for the specialized group of patients, that, that then becomes a little bit more of a, a broader issue. Um, if you have staffing problems where people can't get to the hospital. And, yeah, we were fortunate. We had some, a lot of our colleagues around the country were obviously reaching out, asking for if they could help in any way. And, you know, we ended up uh, taking up some offers from folks around the country for uh, 
neonatal ICU nurses, as an example. And those people were gracious enough to come help us staff during the kind of recovery phases of the storm. So, you know, that that's something where I think that a national coordinating effort is helpful. And obviously you had the, the storms in Florida that were right behind Harvey that also kind of put pressure on the the national response as well. But you know, all of those are, are good learnings as we prepare uh, for what will be the next storm at some point in the future. Brian, thanks very much for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Now it's time for Fast Five. Five fast facts about a hot topic in healthcare. I'm Eric Reese, managing editor of HFM Magazine. And today, We'll be talking about tips for hospitals and health systems on how to prepare for the potential threat of a hurricane as we enter the heart of the hurricane season. Practice is key. No matter how comprehensive and thoughtful a hospital's disaster plan, that plan is of minimal value unless the hospital drills it at least annually, and it is leadership's responsibility to ensure these drills occur. The CEO should take the lead, setting the tone for the organization's disaster preparedness and ensuring that practice remains a priority. Tabletop exercises can be especially useful in preparing for a hurricane or other natural or man-made disaster, particularly if the CEO runs the exercise. These exercises should detail clear roles for different members of the hospital staff and clear checklists for actions that need to be taken on different floors or in different parts of the hospital. Tabletop exercises can expose blind spots in a plan and assess how well the hospital team works together. Innovation during a disaster is sometimes necessary, but reliance on and confidence in existing systems is critical. Ideally, most innovation will have occurred before an event, a hospital's response to a disaster should be as automatic as possible, and implementation should require as little thinking as possible. Checklists should be an essential part of the disaster preparedness plan and should be tailored for different individuals and their responsibilities. Adjusting hospital ordering based on seasonal needs can help improve preparedness. The Atlantic hurricane season runs from June 1st through November 30th. Hospitals may want to consider adjusting their ordering practices and supply chain management to include more inventory during hurricane months. An effective preparedness plan includes clear steps starting 120 hours from the hurricane's predicted landfall. Hurricanes, unlike other natural or man-made disasters, are detectable days before they make landfall. A hospital's written plan and subsequent drills should include detailed checklists of actions to take 120 hours, 96 hours, 72 hours, 48 hours, 24 hours, 12 hours, 6 hours, and 0 hours before impact, and then at least 3 to 6 hours after impact. These tips come from Leah Winfield of Levitt Partners. To read more about hurricane disaster preparedness for healthcare organizations, read her HFM On Point column at hfma.org on point August 2018. 
Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by Erica Grotto. The new segment is written and recorded by Rich Daly, and additional recording this week was provided by Nick Hutt and Eric Reese. Sound editing is by Julian Suga. HFMA's president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast, and don't forget to tell a friend or colleague if you like what you're hearing. If you're a healthcare provider with a story to share, or if you'd just like to get in touch with our team, you can email us at podcast at hfma.org. We'd love to hear from you.